Amen. That was a song written by Isaac Watts. I hope you will meditate on the words of that song. How sweet and awful. Full of awe is a place with Christ within its doors. Friends, I would like this morning to ask you a question. Have you ever received those letters in the mail that say, this is a final notice? You know what I'm talking about? Typically, those letters mean it's the final notice before your debt is sent to collection. I was trying to find one of those letters in our house. I couldn't find one. These days, you don't even have to open the envelope to get the point. These days, companies actually have envelopes that have written on it the words, final notice, to make sure that you don't miss opening it up and you don't miss the final notice that your debt is being sent to collection. Well, in some ways, the passage we will read this morning, John chapter 12, it's much like a final appeal to the crowds about who Jesus is. If you will, the passage we will read, John chapter 12, it's a final notice Jesus gives to the crowds. Would you open Scripture to the book of John chapter 12? If you are using a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, one of the small red Bibles, you may find this passage on page number 934. We are going through our gospel, the gospel of John, one chapter at a time. This gospel has 21 chapters. We are in chapter 12 today. We're halfway through and look forward to see how the rest of this gospel develops. Well, let's listen to the word of the Lord for us this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself what was poured into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast 
heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said toward one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip told, in turn, told Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said, It had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is a time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But, when, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. 
This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so that they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praises from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my word, but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father had told me to say. Amen. Well, friends, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom to understand this word so it may lead us also to life. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we need you. We depend on you to open the eyes of our hearts so that we may hear your word and believe and have life in it and through it. O Lord, we pray these things through the name of Christ. Reveal yourself to us, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, in our our sermons um, in this gospel, in a series through John's gospel, we have looked at a number of signs Jesus made to show to us who he is, and then we have heard many dialogues of what Jesus taught based on these signs, showing to us, trying to prove to us that he is the anointed king, the Messiah, the Son of God. And what Jesus claimed about himself was so radical that the solution many of the Jews and the Jewish leaders came to was this man is blaspheming This man deserves to die. Well, this chapter is the last appeal. The final notice Jesus gives to the crowds about his identity. Friends, it's the last time in this gospel that Jesus will try to convince the crowds to believe in him. This is where we are in this gospel. After this chapter, starting with chapter 13, to chapter 17, Jesus will speak only to the disciples, not to the crowds. 
And then from chapter 7, 18 to 20, we'll see the passion narrative. And then chapter 21 will be an epilogue, and this gospel will be over. So chapter 12 is the last time Jesus is addressing the crowds. That's why it's the final appeal. That's why it's the final notice. As we look at this chapter, I'd like to encourage you to, to look at four things, four notices that this chapter gives us as a final notice. We're called to do four things, to notice his worth, to notice his kingship, to notice his death, and finally, to notice our unbelief. Notice his worth, notice his kingship, notice his death, notice our unbelief. Notice his worth. Up until now, we've, we've had stories of what Jesus did for other people. Now in chapter 12, we see a story of what a woman does for Jesus. At no other time in this ministry did Jesus sit among humans whose response of faith and love was more vivid and eloquent as in this chapter. Mary does something extravagant for Jesus. This perfume, we were told, was worth a year's wages. Now, I want you to think about your year's years wages. For each of you, that figure will be different. But for all of you, the value that figure has in your heart is the same. Because it's a year's wages. That's a lot of money. A perfume worth a year's wages? I can't find it even today. But Mary had it. Now, it's possible that Mary either was, Mary's family was either extremely wealthy or this was a family inheritance that was passed on from one generation to another. You know those things that were just passed on from one, one generation to another? One of these two things is, is the only explanation we have why Mary had this kind of perfume with this kind of value, and what does she do to it, with it? Mary pours it on Jesus' feet. This was an incredibly extravagant and expensive gift. Now, no one asked Mary to do this, but her love for the Lord led her to do something lavish for Him. The text doesn't tell us why um, or what motivated Mary to do this lavish act. We only know the motivation Jesus found behind it. Jesus says that it was to prepare him for his burial, although it's doubtful that Mary actually understood this act in this way at that time. Notice that John places this story of Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet right after the Jewish leaders decided to kill Jesus. Do you remember last week in chapter 11 that at the end of the resurrection of Lazarus, the Jewish leaders decided this is it. We gotta kill this God. Surprisingly, John puts a story of Mary's anointing right after the decision of the Jewish leaders. And remember what was their motivation for killing Jesus? 
In chapter 11, we were told that they were more preoccupied with their authority and their security, with their place and their freedom. Now, think with me for a moment. From the perspective of these Jewish leaders, those things were more important than the life of a man. Their place, their authority, their freedom was more important than the life of a man. Against this backdrop, now we see a picture of Mary. For Mary, the most extravagant perfume was worth using on Jesus. She didn't know that this was a preparation for his death. All she knew was that Jesus was worth more than a perfume that was worth a year's wages. But do you know who else didn't see the value of Jesus? Not only the leaders of Jerusalem, but Judas, the Iscariot. For him, Mary's costly act of showing the worth of Jesus was money thrown down the drain. Once the perfume was poured out, its monetary value was gone. Judas was right about that. But for Judas, the monetary value was of greater significance than the value of showing how precious Christ is. Yet, for Mary, the only reason she could do this so-called wasteful act is because to her, Jesus was a greater treasure than this perfume. That's why Mary was able to do this. What a beautiful way to start the the passion narrative by showing the great worth and value that Mary ascribed to Jesus. Oh friend, faith in Christ or believing in Christ is not just an act of our intellect, but also an embrace of our affections. To our affections, faith in Christ is manifested in seeing how precious Christ is. So ask yourself this morning, how highly do you esteem the worth of Christ? How highly do you esteem the worth of Christ? How precious is He to you? I'm not asking you, what are you willing to sacrifice for Him? I'm simply asking you, how precious is He to your affections? Mary's act stands in, in stark contrast to the high priest and to Judas. And this contrast is a great display of what it means to be in the light from what it means to be in darkness. Our devotion to the Lord, dear friends, feels heavy and weighty when our love for Him is light. When our love for God is low, the smallest sacrifice God asks of us seems huge. Have you ever noticed that? And it feels like a favor we're doing to God. But when our love for God is great, no sacrifice seems too high to make for Him. And in Mary's case, was not even giving such an extravagant gift. So if you're struggling to delight in Christ this morning, ask yourself, why is this? There are a few possible reasons. 
why you might be struggling with delighting in Christ, with having your affections delight in Christ. First, you may not realize how great is your brokenness and your debt to God. You actually don't think you have a lot of debt owing to God. Or perhaps you have, you, there was a time in your life when you did know that, but now you have forgotten it. Jesus told Simon the Pharisee in the Gospel of Luke, he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Remember that? He who has been forgiven little, loves little. Friends, one of the reasons why our delight in God is low might be because we forget how utterly broken we have been or how broken we still are apart from Christ. Another reason could be that we simply have not understood how much Christ has done for us. We have lost our amazement for the cross. It's not a coincidence that John begins talking about the passion story by prefacing it with the story of Martha's anointing. So this morning, how can you jumpstart your delight in Christ? First, come to grips with your brokenness and realize that what you truly deserve it's God, is God's justice. That's what we truly deserve, all of us. And yet, what He has given instead was His pardon because He acted His justice on His Son, not on us. That's why the second thing you can do to jumpstart your delight in Christ is to grow in your delight for the cross of Christ. Friends, if Mary was able to show her delight in Christ before the cross, before the resurrection, how much more should we seek to cultivate a cherishness in our own hearts to cherish Christ and hold Him in the highest honor and love Him and commit to Him and adore Him now that we have seen His cross and His resurrection? So that's why Mary's anointing is such a sweet opening to the passion story. Take the first notice of this chapter. Notice the worth of Christ. But second of all, notice His kingship. Notice His kingship. The miracle that, that Jesus did of raising Lazarus from the dead caused a great commotion. No wonder that when people heard about it and also heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they went out to meet Him. Yet with this great commotion, we are told that the Pharisees also had their agenda. The word got out in, in chapter 11, verse 57, that the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. But these Pharisees planned to kill not only Jesus. Look with me to verse 10 in chapter 12. These Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus also. They made, up, they made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Now, friends, this is a foreshadow of what Jesus will teach his disciples in chapter 17, that the world will hate the followers of Jesus just as they have hated Jesus. We should expect nothing, nothing less. Now, this is the backdrop against which Jesus decides to enter Jerusalem. 
great commotion on one hand, great commotion with superficial enthusiasm, and on the other hand, a public plot by the city officials to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Now, how does Jesus enter the city, a city governed by officials who are waiting to kill him? Jesus could have entered like James Bond, secretly surprising his opponents. Or he could have entered um, forcefully with a counter-strike. But Jesus entered neither secretly nor forcefully. He entered royally and peacefully. He entered riding on a donkey. Now, friends, this is huge symbolism for bringing peace. Um, he, uh, this was a, a huge picture that was actually prophesied in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. We actually are told, it was written in the book of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Friends, in the Old Testament, God is telling Israel that her king is coming to bring peace and salvation. And the way the people of Israel could recognize that king that he will be riding into the city on a donkey. Those were the hints of the Old Testament. Now, it's important for us to realize, verse 16 in our passage in John chapter 12, it says that at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him? This is key. Even with all this symbolism that was foreshadowed and told clearly in the Old Testament, when they, they came about, the Jews, the crowds, the disciples, none of them realized what they were doing, that they were fulfilling the Scriptures. They were fulfilling the prophecy. So Jesus entered Jerusalem, acclaimed by the crowds as the king. Jesus entered Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy as the coming king. Eventually, Jesus died in Jerusalem under the accusation of king of the Jews. But so many of, uh, in that day did not understand these things. They did not see the connections. Why is this entrance important for us? Friends, because this is another picture, another reason why Jesus should be precious to us. This is another reason why we should take notice of this final notice, because the one who gives it is the King. It's as if, dear friends, it's as if that envelope with a final notice that you get in the mail, it's hand-delivered by the person who wants to give it to you. There's no mailman. There's no stamp. Somebody actually delivers it to you personally. And the one who comes to deliver it 
is the king himself. Oh, friends, as, as Zechariah prophesied, the one who comes to deliver this final notice, his rule will extend to the ends of the earth. Do you and I see the connections? Do you and I get it? Now, think here not just individualistically. He is not our peace just individualistically, but He is bringing peace to the nations. Francis means that the ultimate peace of the nations will be secured not by the UN, not by political or military force. Peace for the nations will be brought by King Jesus, the one who entered His city riding on a donkey, royally and peacefully. That's why He's precious to us. But he's not our peace, only our peace individualistically. He's the peace of the nations so that our peace, which He brings to us, puts us at peace with all those who belong to God's kingdom from among all the nations. That's the church. That's why the church, the local church, should be characterized as a community of peace. Where peace abounds. Where King Jesus is truly on His throne. Where He comes in riding on a donkey. He brings peace. Is there peace in your heart this morning? Is there peace in your relationships with those who belong to Christ's kingship? Notice, the Pharisees become so desperate over Jesus' influence that they speak hyperbolically. Verse 19, look with me. Look how the whole world has gone after Him. That's right. He's coming to bring peace to the nations. And now the Pharisees, out of desperation, they see in this great commotion a symbolism, a hint that indeed the whole world is going to come after Jesus. And in not, it's not a coincidence that the very next thing that happens after the Pharisees make this claim in verse 19, the very next thing that happens is we're told that some Greeks came to Philip and requested, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. A small hint that the peace Christ came to bring to the nations had already started affecting the nations even then at the Passover because there are some Greeks calling and seeking for Jesus. Even though at the Passover, Jesus entered Jerusalem royally and peacefully, He was still rejected. And He was still hated by many. Not only then, but even today. But that does not invalidate the truth that His kingdom will be from sea to sea, extending to the ends of the earth. Friends, that's why at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives a great commission. Remember what he says? All authority has in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, not just of the Jews, but of all nations. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus. Friends, recognizing Jesus' kingship and the peace he brings to the nations is the foundation of our Great Commission. That's why we're supposed to do the Great Commission. Believing in His future peaceful kingship over the nations should compel us to be heralds of His King and to proclaim His peace to the nations 
and invite them to turn to him. Are you doing that? If Jesus is the royal king who brings peace for the nations, and if he has given you that peace, are you passing it along? Members of Park Hills Baptist Church, I want to speak to you right now for a second, just to you. Missions is not an extra thing we do as a church. Missions should not be what we do on top of being a church. Missions is what we do as a church. Missions is what we do because we are a church. Because we are the community over whom King Jesus has brought peace and is extending that peace, not just here, but to the nations. In Austin, but to the nations. That means, dear friends, that we exist to glorify God by proclaiming Christ not only here in Austin, but among the nations. That's why we do that verbally. That's why we send missionaries, um, not only in Rollingwood, when we call you to come out and help us meet our neighbors, to go and, and talk to our neighbors and, and be a light for them, we are taking Christ's kingship to Rollingwood. But we do so when we go to mission trips overseas, and we do so when we support missions, when we give money to the missions. We extend the peace of Christ to the nations. That's our mission as a church. But how will people be drawn to the king? How will people be drawn to his reign? We notice his worth. We notice his kingship. Let's notice his death. Notice his death. Friends, we might find it surprising that a chapter beginning with the worth of Jesus and with the kingship of Jesus ends on the note of the death of Jesus. Friends, this is exactly the point. This is exactly the point. The worth of Christ and the kingship of Christ are defined for us through his cross. Here's how Jesus defines the dynamics of his death. Look at verse 23 with me. The hour has come, he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you've been with us from the beginning of this gospel, you remember that a few times Jesus responds to people who are asking him to do stuff. He says, my hour has not come. Remember? A few times through this gospel. And now, for the first time, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Friend, we never think of anyone's death as an hour of glorification. We never. Our world is not used to thinking in this way. And yet, when Jesus thinks of his death, he thinks of it as the hour of glorification. Now, don't assume that this hour was joyful or trouble-free. Even for Christ, this hour was a moment, an hour when his heart was troubled. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I do? Father, save me from this hour? No! He was, for this very reason, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The hour of glory for the Son of Man is marked by a troubled heart. And yet, with a troubled heart, looking at the cross, 
Jesus has one prayer to God. Father, glorify your name. Friends, can we say the same when our hearts are troubled? We never have to look towards the cross for ourselves, our cross, the way Jesus did. But can we say when our hearts are troubled, Father, glorify your name? Now, how will God glorify His name through the death of His Son? The text tells us, verse 28, there's a short confirmation from heaven. The crowds heard various signs. Some heard thunder. Another, others heard a voice of an angel. But the same message, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. In other words, what the crowds heard is that Jesus has glorified His name through the ministry of Jesus, through the miracles. And now God will glorify His name even through His death. Now we know that He's Creator. As Creator, He's the only one who gives life. But now we are told, how is it that God the Father gives a second life to those who are dead in their sins, to those who are far away from Him? And by the way, that's how each of us were born. Dead in our sins and far away from God. How is God giving life to those who are dead in their sins? This passage tells us that God the Father gives life to us through the death of His one and only Son. This is what reveals the glory of God. This is how His name is made known. Jesus said in verse 32, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. He said this to show the kind of death He was going to die. Friend, this is it. His death will have an attractional power for all men. This is how God brings us to Himself. Through His death, He will bring all men to Himself. In His cross, the glory of Christ is both hidden and displayed. Hidden because to our eyes, the cross is shame. The cross is scorn. The cross is weakness. The cross is death. But when the one hanging on it is the Son of Man, the cross becomes the most powerful force drawing people to God. Friends, how is the cross attracting you to God? How is the cross attracting you to God? Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is the center of Christianity. Our only way to be reconciled to God, to be drawn to Him, was made possible because Christ paid our debt so that our account would not be sent to collection. So that our guilt would not be counted on our account, but instead receive His righteousness. Without the cross, we could never be drawn to God. Without the cross, God Himself could not attract us and draw us to Himself. Do we understand that? That's why the glory of God is manifested through the cross. Because the only way possible for the infinite God, for the eternal God, for the omnipotent God, the only way God, this eternal God, could draw us to Himself was through the cross. Now, does this mean that all men will be drawn to Jesus in the sense of being saved? No. Look at verse 36. Jesus tells this crowd, 
Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. Only those who respond to Christ, only those who understand Jesus to be the light and the life, only those who listen to Him, only they become sons of light. Now what happens to us when we're drawn to Him? What happens to us when we're drawn by the power of the cross? Notice that a change takes place. A change takes place in us. This change is a change of identity. Verse 36 says, we become sons of light. Friends, this is amazing news. Our response to God first changes our identity because we recognize that what is broken in us is not simply our external behavior. The brokenness of our lives has reached our very identity. And that's where a change must take place. How can our identity be changed? The answer is only through the cross. When we identify ourselves with Christ, when we realize that we deserve God's judgment, and yet understand that Christ paid the price in our place, we put our faith in Christ, we identify ourselves with Christ, and we say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is how our identity changes through the cross. So that when we put our faith in Christ in this way, we become sons of light. Friends, has Christ changed your identity? If you're not sure about it, it's a good sign that He has not yet. You still need a change of identity. I invite you this morning to turn to Christ in your brokenness. Acknowledge that you deserve His judgment and accept His free grace to change you. Now you would think that such a great request, such a great news would be accepted by everyone, would be received by all people, but John tells us otherwise. Verse 37 through 43, John tells us that despite all these miraculous signs, many of the Jews still would not believe in Him. How come? Was Jesus not able to draw these Jews to Himself? Did His word fail? Was His cross not powerful enough? Why is it that they still rejected the Christ? Well, notice the last notice of this chapter. Notice our unbelief. Notice the great blindness of unbelief. John says that their unbelief was a fulfillment of Scripture. And John brought up two Old Testament references that have been fulfilled. Listen to verse 38. This, namely their unbelief, was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This comes from Isaiah 53, which Paul read earlier in the service. It describes the death of the servant of the Lord. At the very beginning of that chapter, we are told of the sad reality that despite the fact that he was pierced for our transgressions, despite the fact that he was crushed for our iniquities, despite the fact that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, despite the fact that with his wounds we are healed, despite all this good news, 
we are all like sheep have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own ways. Why? Because of what the prophet said at the beginning of the chapter. But who has believed our message? Who has believed this good news? Friends, this problem is with us even today. Perhaps you're here this morning hearing this message, and you yourself are struggling to believe this message. Friend, the struggle for believing this news is is the greatest struggle you could be a part of. And you cannot overcome this struggle by yourself. You need to ask God to reveal Himself to you, otherwise you could never find the truth on your own. So if you're generally seeking to know the truth, you're generally struggling to know the truth, all you have to do, your only hope is this. Do this. Pray this. God, reveal yourself to me. I don't have the capacity to come to the light unless you heal the blindness of my eyes. That's the only way you can overcome the struggle to believe in Christ. That's why the second Old Testament prophecy is so powerful. Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Friends, unless God is going to heal the blindness of our eyes and the deafness of our ears, we would never be able to believe in Him. Take notice. Take notice of our unbelief and the nature of our unbelief. But take notice of verse 46. With all this unbelief, Jesus says something powerful in verse 46. It's almost as as an ending. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Take notice. This is a great benefit we have in coming to Christ. We no longer stay in darkness. Christ shines His light on us. He reveals a sinfulness of our hearts, our brokenness, our vain pursuits of finding the significance of life in the idols of this world. Our emptiness, empty hopes of finding our own identity in things that don't satisfy us. He sheds His light on all of that. And he says, it's darkness. He came to shine the light. But he came so that he will take us out of it. To draw us out to himself, who is the light. Oh friend, listen to this final notice. Notice his worth. Notice his kingship. Notice his death. Notice our unbelief. You may be this morning here and say, okay, so, so what? What if I don't act on this notice? What if I don't do, what if I ignore this notice? Friends, this is one of those notices you can't ignore. Because this notice has incredible power. Jesus says to those who hear his words but don't act on it, he says, I'm not going to judge you, verse 47. He's not saying they're off the hook. He's saying the word you have heard, this notice I have given you, It's powerful enough to stand in judgment against you on that day. This final notice 
has the authority to stand in judgment against all those who choose not to act on it. Friends, you can't stay on the fence with this notice. You can't ignore it in the day of judgment. And yet, there's something utterly amazing about this final notice. I mentioned to you about the, the, at the beginning of the sermon about the envelope that we thought sometimes get, final notices. I told you how similar chapter 12 is to, to those kind of notices. And yet there's one last thing, one huge difference that I want to leave you with. Chapter 12 is so different than any final notice that you get that warns you about your debt that is about to be sent to collection. There's one way Jesus' final notice is significantly different, and it's this. It's verse 15. Jesus says about the power of God's Word, I know that His commands lead to life. Friends, the very same Word that brings judgment when ignored brings eternal life when it is followed. This means that for those who act upon this final notice, not only will their entire debt be forgiven, but life, eternal life, will be granted instead. Friends, this final notice may be the worst threat to you if you ignore it, but the greatest inheritance and treasure if you act upon it. What will you do with this final notice? Let's pray.